Welcome to the Internet Work, a podcast made by internal medicine residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Um, this week, we bring to you an episode of Ask the Fellow discussing endovascular uh, clot retrieval therapy, and we're sitting down with Dr. Christine Hawks. Christine, can you introduce yourself? Sure. Thank you so much, and thanks for having me. I'm an adult neurologist, and I did training in stroke or vascular neurology as a fellowship, and now I'm doing a fellowship in interventional neuroradiology. Awesome. Lots and lots of years of school, huh? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, well, thank you for taking the time to do this with us. We really appreciate it. Um, so as you guys know, we usually start with a case. So Zara, will you kick us off? Okay. So a 65-year-old man with a history of hypertension, diabetes, and a previous NSTEMI on aspirin is admitted to the general internal medicine floor for pneumonia. His bedside nurse saw him at 7 a.m. when she took his vitals and suspended his medications. He got up and went to the bathroom under the nurse's supervision, and then he ate breakfast. At 8.30 a.m. on rounds, he is found in bed with a left gaze preference, right hemiparesis, and global aphasia. Vital signs are stable, and he has a new atrial fibrillation. As you're calling the stroke team, you do a quick bedside exam. NIHSS is approximately 20. He is taken for a CT head and CTA, arch to vertex, carotids and circle of willis. The CT head shows no blood, only minimal early ischemic changes in the left MCA territory, with an aspect score of 9. CTA shows a left MCA occlusion in the distal M1 segment. They run through the contraindications to IVTPA with his wife over the phone and prepare to give him IVTPA. At the same time, they call the neurointerventional team to activate a clot retrieval, or EVT. So why don't we start with what exactly is EVT and what does it entail? Yeah, so EVT stands for endovascular therapy or treatment, and it basically um, can also be called clot retrieval or mechanical thrombectomy. So you'll see multiple different terms thrown around for the same procedure. And it's a procedure where we try to mechanically remove a clot from the um, brain circulation that's causing ischemic stroke symptoms. And it's done in a cath lab, kind of similar to probably what you're familiar with, with cardiology, where we perform the procedure um, usually using access in the uh, femoral artery and feeding wires and catheters up towards the brain and then using various devices to try to remove the clot. Sometimes it's, it involves using little suction catheters, kind of like a little vacuum cleaner, and often we use a stent, a retrievable type of stent that we deploy within the clot and then remove it, pulling and sometimes suctioning at the same time. And so why, why can't we do EVT on every single stroke? Is, are there certain um, specific types of strokes uh, that are more amenable to this procedure? Yeah, so uh, the type of stroke that, that EVT works for is where there actually is a large vessel occlusion. And, and a large vessel occlusion, or, or we call it an LVO, is where there is a blockage in one of the main proximal arteries in the brain. So that's the in, internal cerebral artery, the ICA, uh, the middle cerebral artery, or the MCA, and we reserve it typically for the M1 or the M2 segments, proximally, so the bigger arteries in the brain. Um, and we also typically consider the basilar artery uh, a large vessel occlusion type of blockage as well. Um, the smaller arteries in the brain, it become, they become too small for us to safely go in with the catheters and wires to try to remove clots. Um, and, and, and strokes can be caused without a large vessel occlusion, um, but large vessel occlusions are the type of stroke that cause the largest amount of disability and cause the 
the big severe strokes that can be life-threatening. Got it. Um, and so when you're called to a patient like this one on the ward and you need to consider what therapies are available to you, what things do you consider beyond, is this like an LVO? Um, what sort of things can mimic that kind of stroke? Yeah, so when you're looking at someone uh, like the case describes that has severe stroke symptoms, you should be thinking, number one, is this a large vessel occlusion, of course, so that's why you're calling the stroke team. Uh, they're going to be arranging for imaging, including a CT and a CTA, to look for one of these big blockages. But you should also be thinking about intracerebral hemorrhage. Often patients with intracerebral hemorrhage can have similar high NIH stroke scale scores and look the, the exact same as a large vessel occlusion. Um, sometimes patients with intracerebral hemorrhage may have more reduced alertness or be vomiting or have very severely elevated blood pressure. So that might key you in that it could be a hemorrhage rather than an LVO, but they can, they can be uh, indistinguishable until you get the imaging. The other things that you should be thinking of um, on your differential are things like um, seizures or a postictal state, like a Todd's paralysis, which can look very similar to a large vessel occlusion. Um, and you may get a history of someone who has a history of epilepsy or there was a clear event that looked like a seizure before this. Um, but uh, a small proportion of patients with large vessel occlusions can actually present with seizure. So you should still be ruling out a large vessel occlusion, even if you do get the history that there was a seizure that was witnessed. And then you should also be going down your differential of other things like metabolic problems, including hyper or hypoglycemia. So one of the internal medicine stroke um, physicians once told me that you should be thinking your ABCs as you do with every single patient, but you should also be thinking of D, E, F, and G, which stands for don't ever forget the glucose. And that, that also counts in stroke. That's awesome. Yeah, I love that. And so that makes sense. So for every patient uh, that we're seeing, we should be thinking, you know, is this a stroke? And if it is a stroke, is it a large vessel occlusion? Uh, so that we can be talking to you guys over the phone, giving you the appropriate information. Um, is there other types of information that we should be giving to you? Um, something that would help you rule in or out if the patient themselves are candidates for EBT? Because I know as internal residents, we often hear about um, indications and contraindications for IVTPA, um, mm -hmm. but not so much for EBT. That's all a bit yeah. foreign to us. So the, the contraindications for TPA that you probably are aware of are often not actually contraindications for EBT. So um, someone who's on anticoagulation, even on a heparin drip, for example, or they're on um, any oral anticoagulation, that's not a contraindication for EBT. It's something that we would like to be aware of, of course, because it um, you know, we are more careful with punctures, we're more careful with those sorts of things in someone who's on anticoagulation, but it's definitely not a contraindication to EBT. Other things that are a contraindication to TPA that aren't a contraindication to EBT are um, like low platelet count, um, severely elevated blood pressure that can't be controlled. So the criteria for EBT are slightly less restrictive um, as far as those contraindications go. Um, but the main difference between TPA and EBT is that EBT is really the most suited for large vessel occlusions. If there's no occlusion, then, then the treatment is not useful. But TPA can be given to patients who don't actually have a large vessel occlusion. They may have a smaller um, blockage somewhere in the, in the circulation. Got it. 
And so sort of building off of that in terms of TPA versus EBT and when you might rule it out, which patients are definitely candidates for EBT? How do you decide who can get that? Really, the short answer is that everyone with a large vessel occlusion should be considered a candidate until it's completely ruled out. Um, we are finding more and more that the um, that this is such a powerful treatment that there are really no subgroups of patients who don't benefit from EBT when they have a large vessel occlusion. So age, though, is a prognostic factor. It, it, older patients still benefit. Large um, infarct that's already established, um, though it is a poor prognostic factor, does not mean necessarily that these patients don't benefit. So the criteria are um, kind of in evolution uh, I would say for EVT, the, the strictest criteria are the ones that would follow the main big trials that have been published, and that's what the guidelines are based on. So the main um, big five endovascular treatments for patients in the early time window uh, came out in 2015. Those trials in the early window looked at patients whose last known well or last seen normal was between zero and six hours. And those are the trials escape. Mr. Clean, Swift Prime, Revascat, and Extend IA. Um, so they looked at patients in the early time window who had a clear large vessel occlusion, and um, they randomized patients to endovascular treatment or medical therapy alone, which included um, a lot of patients who did receive IVTPA. And those were patients who were less than six hours. Um, they had uh, various inclusion criteria as far as the type of neuroimaging that was done. But basically, the patients needed to have some clinical symptoms of stroke and some mismatch between the degree of established brain infarct or the degree of dead brain and the amount of tissue that was at risk of dying. And they all used sort of different protocols for those specifics. I like the yeah. names of those trials. Yeah, I know. I was going to say, <laughs> whoever comes up with these. Building off of that, I know that the cutoffs in terms of time, like candidacy, have been evolving um, and kind of changing as more studies come out and as we sort of push the limits. Where are things at right now? What counts as sort of the standard early window versus maybe a bit later? What are we extending it to? Yeah, so after those um, big five trials came out, there were two uh, large randomized controlled trials that came out in 2018 that looked at the the late window, so looking at patients between the 6 and 24-hour range, um, though some of the earlier trials, like ESCAPE, did include some patients up to 12 hours, the numbers were very small. So that led the way for these, these two big uh, randomized controlled trials looking at so-called late window patients. Um, the main difference with the late window and how I sort of see it is that you, in the early window, you have a mixture of patients. You have some patients who may have just had their infarct, uh, had the clot um, very recently, and some patients that are out to six hours. Um, but you have a mixture of some patients that are progressing their stroke very fast, meaning their, their core infarct size is growing very fast, and some that are uh, progressing their infarct very slow. And we sort of call those slow progressors and fast progressors. Uh, the slow progressors we think are people that have most likely really good collaterals, so they have other pathways that can take over and, and supply blood to the the brain tissue um, beyond and around where the blockage is. And slow progressors or fast progressors, we think probably have poor collaterals. And there may be other factors as well, like age and, and reserve and other biochemical things that we don't fully understand yet. 
when we're thinking of the late window trials, they really included by nature of their inclusion criteria, for the most part, um, very slow progressors. So you're already selecting for patients that have good collaterals or else mm-hmm. they probably wouldn't have made it out to the 24 hour uh, time period without completing their infarct. Um, both trial, both the early window patients and the late window patients um, have a substantial benefit from endovascular treatment. When they pooled um, in a large meta-analysis, the number needed to treat for the early window and the late window is both in the range of two to three. So very low number needed to wow. treat. Wow. Yeah, that's one of the lowest <laughs> number needed to treat. <laughs> and, so, and because that number needed to treat is so low, some people are, are saying, well, probably we were too restrictive in our criteria in uh, some of these trials. Mm-hmm. The reason for that was that there were three negative trials that came before the big five trials that came out in 2015. So they decided intentionally to be restrictive to, to mm-hmm. sort of move the field forward and show that this is a a beneficial treatment. Right. So uh, breaking it down, early window is usually less than six hours uh, from last seen well, and late window is over six hours up until maybe 24 hours. And yeah, particularly exactly. benefit, you said, is with those slow progressors. Both slow progressors and fast progressors benefit okay. from treatment uh-huh. in the early window. But the early um, window. patients who are fast progressors are probably not going to make it to the late window. Right. Go the ahead, bottom right. line is no matter what time frame we're dealing with, we just need to move fast because you don't know whether the patient sitting in front of you is infarcting their core very quickly or mm-hmm. slowly. Um, some of mm-hmm. the studies like several years ago, looking at, at animal models, um, use this, came up with this paradigm of, of 1.9 million neurons per minute are lost when there's an MCA occlusion. But we now know that that's an an average. So (laughs) there's some some people that are infarcting a lot faster than that, Mm. and there's some people that are infarcting a lot slower than that. So no matter what, you just need to move quickly, Mm -hmm. um, whether you're in the late window or the early window. Maybe if you're dealing with a slow progressor, so you've got someone that's um, actually had symptoms like 12 or 16 hours ago, and they still have a small core infarct, um, you maybe have a little bit more time, but that doesn't mean that you should wait. Hmm. Oh, uh, sorry. I was just going to say it's hard <laughs> when you're on the ward and uh, things are moving fast and, uh, you know, time is brain. But when should you actually stop and just say, you know, who should I not treat or when would this therapy probably not be beneficial? Yeah. So, um, like I said, the, there are poor prognostic factors, but even those poor prognostic factors don't mean that the patient won't benefit but we definitely don't treat every single patient who comes in with a large vessel occlusion. One of the main reasons why we wouldn't treat someone is that if they already have a poor functional baseline, putting them through a treatment that's invasive like this is not going to benefit them. Um, So that's like someone who uh, is already severely disabled from some other reason, comes from um, a place where they're severely dependent at baseline, and we use the modified Rankin score scale to... um, kind of give us a gauge of those cutoffs. So we would typically not consider treating someone whose modified Rankin is four or five. So they're severely disabled, dependent. Um, Things are a little bit more gray in in the three. Some some patients may may benefit from treatment and some may not. And then the other reasons why we would not treat someone would be obviously if they don't have a large vessel occlusion, they wouldn't benefit from endovascular treatment because there's no target, there's no blockage that we can go after. 
And then lastly, um, one of the more debated um, points as far as exclusions for EBT is how large of a core infarct size does someone have to have to not benefit from treatment and probably depends on the patient's age. So we know that patients who are younger, um, even if they have a much larger core infarct size, may still benefit from treatment. Um, so we will consider treating patients with a larger core if they're a younger patient. And potentially um, the goal there would not be to spare them from a large infarct because they already have one, but it would be to potentially spare them from having to go for mechanical, or sorry, um, a decompressive hemicraniectomy. Um, and I wanted to come back to actually that piece about the, the core infarct. How does that relate to the, con like the concept of the ischemic penumbra and how does that fit into considerations here? Yeah, so core is the dead brain, the established stroke, the stroke that despite um, recanalizing the vessel with TPA or mechanical thrombectomy, um, the, the brain won't come back. It's already irreversibly damaged. Whereas the penumbra is the tissue that's at risk of dying or infarcting if the blockage is not removed. Um, so it's tissue that's currently oligemic, meaning it's not getting enough blood supply and oxygen to function normally, but it's not completely infarcted or dead yet. So when we're thinking about uh, late window patients in particular, but also early window patients, we're trying to decide, is there a mismatch between the amount of already infarcted brain or core infarct and the amount of tissue at risk or penumbra? And the bigger the mismatch, the more likely the benefit, but um, there's different cutoffs depending on the trial and the early window and the late window. Um, it, so it, it can get quite nuanced and there's different imaging modalities that people will select based on what exactly they're, they're trying to look for. The most basic imaging modality would be a plain CT head and the way that we sort of um, determine core based on CT head is whether there's loss of gray white matter differentiation or hypodense regions um, in the territory that we're uh, looking at and aspect score is one way of uh, scoring somewhat objectively the amount of core infarct. There are other modalities like CT perfusion that are being used more and more because they were used in those uh, two late window trials, Dawn and Diffuse 3. Um, they were part of the trial to uh, establish a mismatch between clinical or core radiographically and the amount of penumbra. Gotcha. Okay. Awesome. So what about, we've mentioned it a few times, but haven't sort of fitted into the context here. What about IVTPA? How does this work in the context of EBT as well? So there's a proportion of patients that can receive IVTPA and don't have a large vessel occlusion. And there's a proportion of patients who have a large vessel occlusion and, and are candidates for endovascular treatment, but can't receive IVTPA. So we've talked a little bit about some patients who are on anticoagulation, who have low platelet counts, who have uncontrolled blood pressure, that are all exclusions for IVTPA, but they could still be candidates for endovascular treatment if they have a large vessel occlusion. And then there's also a portion of patients that are a candidate for both. So patients who come in in the correct timeframe to receive IVTPA, so their last known well less than 4.5 hours, and they don't have any of the exclusions for TPA, and they're all, they also have a large vessel occlusion, so they're also a candidate for EBT. And um, some of those patients get TPA on their way to the angio suite with us, and some of those patients come from outside hospitals and have received TPA at a local hospital that's TPA capable, 
but doesn't have endovascular capabilities and they're transferred to us sort of like a drip and ship model. Um, and, and we strongly encourage that, that that's what's in the guidelines. Patients who are candidates for both treatments should re definitely receive both treatments, but there shouldn't be a delay to endovascular treatment um, to try to just get TPA. Um, they should be part, built into the system that they can work together. And, and sometimes we do have patients that receive IV TPA at an outside hospital, and then by the time they get to us, um, have recanalized already because TPA does work in a proportion of patients. In these large vessel occlusion patients, um, we do keep in mind that these large vessel occlusions, depending on the location of the clot and the clot burden, um, are less likely to recanalize with IV TPA. And can you break it down for us in regards to IV TPA? Like if we're thinking this is a large vessel occlusion, we've called you, uh, we're waiting for EVT and, you know, we have to start the IV TPA, what would be the dosing and what type of monitoring would the patient need? Same as your standard dosing for IV TPA for any patient. So 0.9 milligrams per kilogram is the standard dose up to 90 milligrams. Um, you do 10% via bolus and then the rest over uh, the next one hour as an IV infusion. Um, same standard monitoring that you would do for any patient receiving IV TPA, but if they're also a candidate for EBT, then they might actually get some of that monitoring done while they're in the angio suite because uh, we're not going to delay the procedure to finish the IV TPA. We want, thing, we want them to kind of both work together and do their mm -hmm. jobs. Sometimes um, we actually recanalize before the IV TPA is finished, and so then um, it's a decision whether or not to just stop the TPA at that point. If the vessel's completely open, then probably you don't need the TPA anymore. But sometimes there's tiny little clots that, um, though we've recanalized maybe close to 90% of the territory, there's some tiny distal clots. So TPA can also be helpful for those distal clots as well. EBT sounds like this amazing procedure where you're just going into the vessel, <laughs> it's really the clot, and everything's okay after that. But of course, everything, there's complications. Um, and so what are the types of complications that we should be aware of? Yeah, so as with anything, you know, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Um, there are complications <laughs> that come with the procedure. We always warn about a risk of um, reperfusion hemorrhage or uh, hemorrhagic conversion of the infarct. Um, in some of the big trials, there was no significant difference in hemorrhage rate, and probably the biggest risk factor for um, hemorrhage into an infarction is a large infarct. So these are patients that are at risk whether they get EVT or not. But we do warn about that. Obviously, we're um, putting small, tiny wires and catheters up into the brain of someone who's we typically do the procedure with the patient awake, so they're moving sometimes, and sometimes they're moving a lot. So that can be dangerous. So there is a small risk of us causing um, things like perforations um, during the procedure. Um, we also, there's a risk of any sort of access complications. Um, we typically do femoral artery access for this procedure because we're using fairly large catheters, but uh, some, in some situations we may choose to use radial access as well. Um, so there's complications that come with whatever access site you decide to use for the procedure. Um, other things that we warn about are the risk of contrast dive course and we use radiation, but in these patients, that's typically the least of their worries. And then the main thing um, that we try to make clear if we have the opportunity to talk to patients' families before the procedure is that there is a proportion of patients that despite our best efforts, we just can't get the clot out. 
um, either it's because of anatomical reasons, like a very difficult steep arch that we can't maneuver our catheters through very easily, or it's the characteristics of the clot that it's a very tough clot that just no matter what we try won't come out. Um, so those patients who can't recanalize are left with a large infarct typically. Um, and even in the patients that everything goes smoothly, there's a proportion that um, despite everything have continued to infarct in the time it takes for us to get everything uh, done and, and to recanalize the vessel. So, so we typically um, will quote patients and families that about 80% of the time we're able to successfully remove the clot. Sometimes it's lower if, if there's more difficulty or there's certain anatomical scenarios that we can identify ahead of time. Um, but about half of the patients who receive um, EVT do well, meaning functionally um, improve and are uh, functionally independent at 90 days. Wow, that's great. And now I know there are some special considerations with respect to posterior circulation, mm -hmm. um, ischemic strokes and basilar artery, and maybe some increased risk of bleeding. What is the balance there in that regard? Yeah, so basilar occlusions are a totally different beast. <laughs> they weren't included in those big trials that I mentioned. Um, there have been some trials that have attempted to look at um, randomizing patients with basilar artery occlusions to EBT or not. Um, but as you can imagine, because these are such devastating types of strokes, there are ethical considerations with mm. these sorts of trials as well. Um, we consider treating patients with basilar artery occlusions out to 24 hours or even beyond that. Um, one reason for that is that basilar occlusions can have sort of a stuttering kind of course and then an acute worsening. Um, so they're a little bit different than the anterior circulation strokes. They can present in with different symptoms as well that can be more subtle at first, like uh, vertigo, double vision, mild dysarthria, and then they can worsen. Um, and the um, type of um, blockage can be different as well. So there's a higher proportion of patients with basilar occlusions that have intracranial athro in comparison to the anterior circulation strokes that we see that are more often um, cardioembolic. Um, mm. So technically they're a little bit of a different challenge for us uh, from the clot retrieval perspective. Um, but patients who have severe symptoms related to basilar occlusion are definitely considered candidates for endovascular treatment. And um, we, you know, we always have a discussion um, with the stroke team around um, what would make someone a candidate, but we typically have a pretty low threshold for taking someone with a basilar occlusion for EDT. And it sounds like you said that um, IVTPA does not increase the risk of bleeding for EBT because it's okay to give IVTPA beforehand, right? It just sounds... Mm -hmm. To me, I, I, that's something I would have worried about, but it sounds like it's not increasing your risk of complications no, of EBT. The, like TPA itself has a risk of um, hemorrhage. EBT itself, probably there's some risk of hemorrhage um, that's, that are both pretty small. Right. And together, um, we consider them sort of like um, helpful partners that if patients are a candidate for TPA and are a candidate for EBT, then they should be uh, receiving both treatments. Um, the, the criteria for TPA are, are a little bit restrict, more restrictive in certain ways. Um, mm -hmm. So we recommend following the, the specifics around the TPA exclusion criteria. Um, but together, we, they're sort of um, helpful kind of partners. Fair enough. Awesome. 
I don't think I have any more questions. I don't know if Zara does either. No, I think that was um, a great breakdown. Yeah, that was awesome. So I guess before we go, could we get you, are there a few like key, key takeaways that you as a neurologist wish internists knew or did or took away from this episode? I think number one is um, being aware of large vessel occlusions, what they look like. These are the patients that you can stand outside the door and see that they have severe symptoms um, and that that could be an LVO patient. Um, So you should be treating that patient as if they're a candidate for treatment until it's found out that they're not. So moving very quickly, identifying these patients and calling the stroke team um, if you're at a center where you have access to a stroke team or if you're not and you have a telemedicine stroke physician or critical physician that you're supposed to call, activating that person as quickly as possible. And then um, thirdly, we do think slightly differently about these patients, whether they're in the early window or the late window. So if you're able to get a sense of what the timeline is, it can be helpful as well. And then finally, um, that this is such a beneficial treatment. We really haven't found a subgroup that doesn't benefit from endovascular treatment. So I think it's really important to remember that this is um, such a dramatic um, treatment effect that we need to be really um, broadly thinking about all the patients that we can potentially help with this treatment. Awesome. I don't know if that was exactly fine. No, that was, I, I lost count. <laughs> it's okay, I think, as long as we have sort of the key pieces, I think yeah. that's the important part. I think EVT is something that is such a black box for so many internal medicine trainees. So that was very, very useful. Yeah, yeah well, thank you awesome. so much for the invite. I'm um, always happy to discuss stroke and EVT and, and the other interventional procedures that we do as well. So stroke is a big part of what we do, but we mm-hmm. also treat patients with aneurysms, with other vascular malformations, with carotid disease and stenosis. So um, yeah, there's a, it's a, a wide breadth of a different vascular pathology that we see. I think you just opened the door for us to bug you more in future. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised if you hear from us. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this today, for hopping on and walking us through this. We really, really appreciate it. it really yeah. Helpful. Thanks a lot for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled Saving Brain, all about endovascular therapy. This episode was recorded with Dr. Christine Hawks, Neurology Fellow, and Leah Karianopoulos and Zara Morali. This episode was recorded and produced by Leah Karianopoulos. The Internet Work series was created by Allison Lai and developed by Zara Morali and Leah Karianopoulos. Music by Lakshmi Vasanthamoan. As always, please check out www.theinternetwork.com for additional resources and our infographics. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again soon.